We're continuing tonight in Theology for Life, and we're considering the doctrine of man. And we have so far considered the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Uh, We have looked together at the foundation of what theology is in the study of God and how it is so practical for us in our lives as we try to think through the issues of life and really frame things through a biblical perspective. And one theologian put it this way about doctrines. He said, the doctrines of Christian theology are interrelated. The doctrine of Scripture is important for epistemological purposes, which is the theory of knowledge. It's how we know what we know. Had God not revealed himself to us and preserved that revelation in Scripture, we would not know of our need or the solution to that need. The doctrine of God is most important from the standpoint of ontology or the nature of being, since God is the ultimate reality and God is the source and the sustainer of all that is. The doctrine of Christ is important because of the focus on redemption and because of Christ's incarnation and life and death and resurrection, making provision for our salvation. If we didn't have the doctrine of salvation and the doctrine of Christ specifically, we would have no hope. We would have no deliverance. So all these things are interrelated. We, we look at them piece by piece, point by point, truth by truth, but they all go together. And they fit together to help us have an understanding overall of what the Bible is teaching us about life and God and people and eternity. Now, the doctrine of man is so important because it teaches us something about God himself. And the reason that I say that it teaches us something about God is because the human being is the highest of God's earthly creatures. And the study of man gives us an understanding of how God works and, in a sense, a study of God himself in the sense that we are created in the image of God. And I'll talk more about that As we go along this evening, the doctrine of man sheds light on our understanding of the person of Christ because he took on a human nature, a human form and entered into the experience of the world. And had God not created human beings, there would be no incarnation. Uh, There would be no need for an atonement. There would be no need for regeneration or justification. There would ultimately be no church. Uh, So this is important. The doctrine of man is the point where biblical revelation and human life converges because it's who we are. It's where we live. It's what God has created us to be. And the doctrine of man is significant, but because of the large attention given to humanity across the theological disciplines, we are not at the center of it. God is at the center of it. But how God relates to us and how we relate to God is certainly a central focus of it all. And then the doctrine of man is very important in this present day that we live in because we are in a crisis of understanding about what a human being even is. In the discussion about gender fluidity and the idea that your gender can be selected rather than than something that is inherent to the biological process, the idea of what the roles of men and women are in culture, It's very confusing right now, especially for many in the younger generation, because they have so much coming at them so fast. And if we're not teaching as a foundation the doctrine of man from the Scripture, we'll not have a proper self-understanding of who we are, 
or how we are involved in the world or what our roles are in God's creation. So we'll hit on that tonight as well. And then the doctrine of man affects how we view other people and how we minister to them. We're not to see people as projects. We're not to see people as opponents. We're not to see people as problems. We're not to see people as inconveniences. We're to see people, even in their most difficult of states, as people who are created in the image of God and therefore have inherent value because they've been created in the image of God. So tonight I want to share as we move forward here what our statement of faith, the Baptist Faith and Message 2000, says about the doctrine of man. And if you want a scripture passage to start with, I'm going to go to Genesis chapter 1 here in just a moment. We're going to use that kind of as our launching point, and we'll look at several as we go along through the study. Here's what the Baptist Faith and Message 2000 says about the doctrine of man. Man is the special creation of God made in his own image. He created them male and female as the crowning work of his creation. The gift of gender is thus part of the goodness of God's creation. In the beginning, man was innocent of sin and was endowed by his creator with freedom of choice. By his free choice, man sinned against God and brought sin into the human race. Through the temptation of Satan, man transgressed the command of God and fell from his original innocence, whereby his posterity inherit a nature and an environment inclined toward sin. Therefore, as soon as they are capable of moral action, they become transgressors and are under condemnation. Only the grace of God can bring man into his holy fellowship and enable man to fulfill the creative purpose of God. The sacredness of human personality is evident in that God created man in his own image. And in that, Christ died for man. Therefore, every person of every race possesses full dignity and is worthy of respect and Christian love. The Baptist Faith and Message 2000 on the doctrine of man. Let me just reference here the usage of humanity or man. When we use those terms, we're using them in a proper sense to refer to people generally, inclusive of both males and females. And it's a way for us to understand, as the Bible presents it to us, what God has done in creating the human race. And I'll refer to those interchangeably tonight as we go along. Now, I don't know if it's ever bothered you or not, but uh, the account of the landing on the moon has always bothered me grammatically. And here's how. Upon taking a small step onto the surface of the moon in 1969, Neil Armstrong uttered what would become one of history's most famous one-liners. But strangely, what he actually said is far from clear. Listeners back on the earth heard, listen carefully, that's one small step for man and one giant leap for mankind. Now, what's always bothered me about that statement is man and mankind are the same thing. What he should have said in his moment of glory of stepping out onto the moon was it's one small step for a man and then it's one 
a giant leap for mankind. Now, in Neil's defense, who died at the age of 82, he claims that he said, Amen. In interviews later in his life, he maintained that he said that's one small step for a man. He said the people back on earth just didn't hear it. It broke up somehow, and they didn't include it when the transmission came through. But at any rate, I am a man, and we are talking about mankind. And tonight we're talking about humanity as it is in the sight of God. And the very idea that God did not need to create us, but he chose to. Think about it. He didn't have to do it. It wasn't as though God was lonely. It wasn't as though God was deficient. It wasn't as though we were somehow completing God. Yet he created us for his own glory. And there have been a number of ideas that have been perpetuated about humanity throughout the ages. In the modern age, particularly, people are often seen, man is seen as a machine. We see in the automation of the world and this whole push toward robotics and uh, the self-checkouts and the lack of a need for a human touch, people are seen as being interchangeable with machines. I was in the Seoul, uh, Korea airport a couple of months back, and I was walking down through the concourse, and I was headed toward my gate. I had a little time to kill, so I was looking for a coffee place. I'd been on a long flight overnight, and I saw out in front of me a robot that looked similar to R2-D2, except thinner, and standing about this tall. And I thought, that's interesting. And I see this lady walk up to the robot she just starts having a conversation with the robot. She brings her little girl up there. They're talking to the robot. Well, it turns out the robot could respond. In fact, you could ask that robot where a particular restaurant was or where a particular gate was, and that robot would respond and lead you to that gate or to that restaurant or to the restroom, to wherever you needed to go. You see, the idea today is that people are not as necessary as they once were, that we might be nothing more than machines ourselves, so therefore we're interchangeable with technology. And of course, this is an age-old argument with the idea of efficiency, and there's a lot of complicated things in the discussion. I'm not trying to oversimplify it. I'm just saying this is one concept of what people really are. And then man is seen at its most basic level as an animal. This is where the theory of naturalism comes in. The idea that we are basically just part of the animal kingdom, that we're derived maybe from some higher form, but human beings have come into being through the same process as have all animals. And we will experience a similar demise when our life on this earth is over. And of course, this is the whole idea of evolution, that we're just animals, we're just part of the animal kingdom Uh, We're just in our particular place in the order of strength and so forth, but we're nothing different than a house pet or a wild animal or whatever other animal you might uh, could think of. And then man has been seen historically and is even seen today primarily in terms of being a sexual being. 
This is important because this comes from the idea that is rooted earlier even than this, but of course Sigmund Freud viewed sexuality as the key to understanding human nature, the psychologist. Uh, the preoccupation with the sexual being in society certain, certainly reflects that. We have all of these movements of people who group together according to whatever their sexual behaviors are, and they make those their identity. I mean, I'm not walking around saying, hey, y'all, I'm a heterosexual. I'm part of the heterosexual community. I'm for heterosexual rights. You know, I'm not saying that because that's not primarily who I am. That's not primarily who you are. Yet when man sees this view of themselves as being wrapped up primarily in their sexuality, then all kinds of confusion follows. This certainly relates to the uh, whole idea about gender and how that's fluid and we choose that, but yet whatever our actions are are what defines us, and it's a very confusing day that we live in. Biblically, man is viewed as a creation of God, having been created in the image of God. So we would say the origins of man are through a conscious, purposeful act by an intelligent, infinite being. That the image of God is intrinsic and it's indispensable. That we have an eternal dimension because of how we've been created in the image of God. So I want us to think about this in sections tonight. We're going to move fairly quickly just for the sake of time. And the first one we'll start with is the origin of humanity. And this is where the Genesis chapter 1 verses will come in in just a moment. Beginning speaks to the fact of something coming into being. The idea can be limited to a scientific reference about how something came about. Whereas origin speaks to the purpose of something coming into being. This is an important nuance here that you don't want to miss because if we're talking merely about beginning and we're not talking about origin, we'll not go to the deepest layer to understand not only what happened, but now we're thinking about how it happened and why it happened. So theology proper does not ask only how human beings came to be on the face of the earth, but why. We're asking the question, What is the purpose for our existence? And Genesis contains two passages of Scripture that primarily relate to this issue of origins. The first is in Genesis chapter 1, in verse 26 and 27. Here's what the Scripture says. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image, verse 27. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. So this records God's decision in making human beings in his own image, in his own likeness. And then God's action in implementing the decision. So it's God's thinking about the fact that he was going to do it. And then it's God's record of the fact that he did it. And the account places emphasis on the purpose or the reason for the creation of human beings in that they were to be fruitful and multiply and have dominion over the earth. So when God created this world, this earth as we know it, he knew that man was going to be the highest created being on the earthly spectrum, uh, just a little lower than the angels. 
and was going to order and have dominion over all that God had created. So we weren't just a piece to the puzzle. We were central in it because we represent the image and the likeness of God. The second passage is in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7. And he says, Then the Lord God formed the man out of the dust from the ground and breathed the breath of life into his nostrils, and the man became a living being. So the second passage emphasizes the way in which God created, out of the dust of the ground, and then breathing into man life as it was, and God beginning the human race with two people, Adam and Eve, and then humanity descending from God's original creation. So here's what this tells us. We are not a product of blind chance or a blind mechanism. We are not the byproduct or scraps of a random process. We are created according to the image and the likeness of God. We are created and have no independent existence on our own. Were it not for God's eternal existence and the fact that He can create something out of nothing and bring us into being, we would have never come into this world as we did. So we are limited in the fact that we are dependent on the one who created us. Only our creator is infinite from an eternal standpoint. Physically, we are finite. Yet spiritually, we were created to live eternally. So we as humans possess both a physical aspect, that's the, that's the material side of the world, that's the part that we can touch and see and experience, and then we have immaterial characteristics. That's the spiritual side of things. That's the part that connects us to God as spirit. We are a unified combination of material and immaterial qualities. So the soul, the spirit, the emotions, the conscience, the will, the mind, it's all connected. And it's all interrelated. Throughout history, when we're talking about theology, there have been two dominant viewpoints about how we're made up or how we're comprised. One is that we have a body and then we have a soul and a spirit which are essentially one. And then the other is that we have a body, but we have a soul and a spirit which are separate, making us a three-part being, essentially, and emphasizing the, the idea that there is a slight difference between the functions of our soul and our spirit. Now, I've never been dogmatic at this particular point because it seems like in the Scripture at times... Soul and spirit are used interchangeably. It's almost like the same concept. And at other times, there's a very well-defined uh, delineation between body, soul, and spirit. But at its core, what we're saying is our spirit is the part that communicates with God. So whether or not we see it as one with the soul, and we are, it is one in, in its purest form, but whether we see it as being something that is distinct within us is not what's so important. 
But it's our understanding that it's our ability to communicate with God who is spirit and who requires us to worship him in spirit and in truth. The soul is our mind and our will and our emotion. It kind of characterizes who we are. And then our body, of course, relates to the five senses. It's the part that interacts with the material world, God's created world. So we are body, soul, and spirit. And whether or not you see it in two or in three, I don't think is the ultimate part of this that's important. Um, and I think you can make a biblical case in either direction, and uh, we can still be friends. So this is the origin of humanity. We're going to move now to the second part, which is the image of God in humanity, which we've already touched on. Now, we are created, and having been created in the image and the likeness of God, we have great value. We already touched on the primary passage of Scripture that is the foundation for our understanding of what it means to be created in the image of God, and that's the Genesis 1, verse 26 and 27 passage. Uh, verse 26 is God's statement of intention because it includes the words image and likeness. So here's what it tells us. There was deliberation in what God did. There was deliberation because the creation of man is of more significance than any other work of creation because of who we are in him. It speaks to design because we possess uh, the image and the likeness of God who is eternal. And then it speaks to dominion because we are God's representatives in the world. We're functioning and managing and coordinating the things that God has placed on this earth. And he's given us dominion over those things. So it's God's deliberation, it's God's design, and it's God's dominion and his purpose for us. Now we have another recap over in Genesis chapter 5 of what God has done. If you'll look at that just briefly, we'll read the first two verses. And he says, this is the document containing the family records of Adam. On the day that God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female. When they were created, he blessed them and called them mankind. And then we have some other references as well. Genesis 9 would be one where uh, murder is prohibited on the basis of the fact that human beings are created in the image of God. And that's why it's such an egregious thing to take the life of another person. Um, there are uh, New Testament passages, certainly, that speak to the image of God in connection with the creation of man. Uh, there's a passage in James chapter 3 that tells us that on the ground, uh, grounds of the fact that we're made in the image of God, then we're not to use our tongue to curse other people. That's condemned speaking to the inherent value of human beings. So what does it mean that we were created in the image and the likeness of God? That, that is a phenomenally deep idea when you start trying to mine the character of who God is. Well, it means at least in part, we were created to resemble God. And I mean that in this way. God is spirit, obviously. And the Imago Dei, or the image of God in us, refers to the spiritual aspect of humanity. It sets us apart from the animal world. It, it gives us a uniqueness in that we are similar to God mentally, morally, socially, 
All these things are ways that we should be similar to the God who created us. So let's just think through a few of these for a moment and think about how the spiritual aspect of us especially reflects the image of God in us. First of all, we would think about this from a mental perspective. So what I mean by that is that we are, at least in part, rational creatures. Um, We are volitional agents. And I'll reference that again here in just a moment. But we have the ability to reason and to choose. So you were able to process this evening when you decided that you were going to come out for Sunday evening Bible study. You were able to quickly process the things that you had on your agenda. And you made a decision that you were going to come here tonight. You reasoned that out. Now, if you've got a dog or a cat at home, that dog or that cat never thought about that. They never even had the ability to do that to begin with. They didn't have the possibility of even processing such a thing. But as human beings, we're unique, and we can rationally think through and logically think through things mentally, and that's part of our similarity with who God is. We're also similar to God morally in that we were created to be righteous and innocent as a reflection of God's holiness, and we know the whole story of the fall. I'm going to touch on that tonight as well. But here's what the Bible says about God's creation. He saw everything that he had made, and it was good. It was very good. God was pleased with what he had made, and that includes humanity. That includes us having been created in his image. You say, wait a minute now, does that mean that uh, due to the fall, that the image of God has been obliterated. It's no longer there. The vestige of it, whatever's remaining of it, is gone. There's no scrap of it. And I'd say to you, absolutely not. Our capacity spiritually has been rendered incapable of being righteous or being made right with God. And that's where God's intervention on our behalf restores that whole deal. But inherently, even the worst of people on the face of the planet have a remnant of the image of God within them. And that's why they're valuable in the sight of God, valuable enough that he would send his son to die for sinners like us. We also have free agency, meaning that we have the ability to make decisions. We can act apart from any external compulsion. That means we can do what we want to do. Again, it's affected, it's marred by the fall, but it's not rendered inoperative. We can still make decisions. We can still say yes. We can still say no. We can still choose which path we're going to go on. And that free agency is important because God is independent. Now, we are dependent on God, so our independence has limits, but yet it's still a similarity with how we've been created in the image of God. And then socially, we were created for fellowship. Did you hear the words in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26? Let us make man in our image. The image of the triune God. The image of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit who were in fellowship from eternity past and are eternally in fellowship. And we're invited into that. So we were created for fellowship. We reflect the triune nature of God and relationships reflect the nature of God. This is why... Satan specializes in isolating people. Because if he can isolate you from the people of God, or even from God himself, 
because of your sin and because of your hard-heartedness, He can do a lot of damage. In all of these things, we are valuable to God. And that brings me next to what I've just referenced, and that is the corruption of humanity. Let's think for a moment about the corruption of humanity. I'll not read the whole passage, but Genesis chapter 3 tells the whole sordid story of what took place, representing the disruption and the undoing of God's created order. And the image of God was defaced and damaged, but it was not destroyed by the fall. This is an important point. The image of God was defaced and damaged, but it was not destroyed by the fall. The fall negatively impacted the image of God in man, but it did not do away with it. We are still given the authority to rule over creation, even though that authority was restricted. God changed the relation of the earth to mankind. He said there was going to be hardship and difficulty. There was going to be toil and sweat and weeds and problems and challenges. All that would be the limitations of our dominion over the earth. And it would all be a reminder of the fall. But man's relationship with God and one another was also marred. Separation. Division, conflict, trouble, murder that came early on. And as a result of all of this, our thinking was marred and subjected to confusion as well. Now, the Bible speaks a good bit about this. The New Testament uh, framework that we have is that uh, we, as human beings on our own, are not able to see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ because of Uh, The blindness that's in our eyes and the hardness that's in our hearts. The enemy has confused us. He's confounded us. So when you look at people that have a different worldview than you do, they're confused by major issues about humanity. You should not look at those people with anger. You should not look at those people with frustration. You should look at those people as people who have been confused by the enemy, marred by the fall, yet still created in the image of God with the possibility of redemption and restoration. And if we see people in that manner, we'll not see them as enemies to be defeated, but as people who need to be redeemed. And it's a big difference, and I get it that it's hard to do that. When our minds have been cleared up and we see the full picture and we understand it all, our understanding is so clear at times that we lose sight of what things used to be like. And we've got to be careful in that, that we're not driving people away, but we're inviting them in. That we're not rejecting them, but we're trying to get them to know the Lord and to understand what it means to be in the fullness of humanity. So the fall represents the willful disobedience of Adam and Eve. They misuse that free moral agency that God gave to them. And then that takes us to the redemption of humanity. And this is the pinnacle of God's work on the earth. Uh, God as Savior did not leave Adam and Eve on the earth under judgment and under destruction and under death. He provided a way out. He promised it early, Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. The nation of Israel is the vehicle through whom the Messiah would come. The history of the Old Testament, the prophecies, uh, the prophets that were raised up, they were all pointing to one moment, and that was the Galatians 4, 4 moment, when in the fullness of time God sent forth His Son, born of a virgin, born under the law to redeem those who are under the law that we might receive adoption as sons. 
That was what it was all pointing to. And several New Testament passages speak about uh, us also becoming more like the image of God through the process of salvation. One primary one that, that comes to mind is Romans chapter 8 and verse 29, where it says that it is the will of God that we be conformed to the image of Christ. So it is God's express will that through the redemptive act, through the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, in your faith in Him, and the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, guided by the truth of the Word, that you are to be conformed to the image of Jesus. What is the image of Jesus? It's that original image, is it not? It's the image of God in us. It's the Imago Dei that was destroyed in us through the fall, or or at least uh, defaced, not destroyed. And then it's restored in its fullness, and ultimately we'll see that when? When we're in the presence of God eternally. Turn over just for a moment to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. There's a beautiful passage there in the New Testament about uh, what's happening to us through the redemptive act of God. Second uh, Corinthians chapter 3, and we'll pick up reading in uh, verse 17. And here's what the Bible says. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. We all, with unveiled faces, are looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord. Now watch this. And are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. This is from the Lord who is the Spirit. So what's happening to us? Well, we're being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. The glory of the Lord. That's what salvation brings to our lives. So we belong to God in our commitment, our devotion, our love, our loyalty, our service to God. All these things are right responses to who He is. So you see the difference between the Christian faith and all these other alternative paths. We are acting and living in light of what God has done, not trying to get to God somehow to make ourselves right with Him. We are living the reality of what God is doing redemptively in us. More and more being transformed from glory to glory into the likeness of who He is. And we ought to pattern ourselves after Jesus. Jesus is the complete revelation of the image of God. He is the full image of God and the one person in humanity who was never spoiled by sin. Oh, He was tempted at every point as we are, yet He was unspoiled by sin. So if we want to see this restoration come into uh, its fullness and its glory, then our prayer is that we would be like Jesus. And Jesus manifested that image of God and that glory of God on the earth. So here's how it works. Let's put these pieces together. Our original condition was that we possess the fullness of the image of God in innocence and holiness. Our marred condition is that the fall brought sin and corruption. That's the lost condition. It's the way we would put it. Our renewed condition is that salvation brings transformation. And from the time that you say yes to Jesus and you believe in His death and His resurrection and the Spirit of God comes to indwell your life, 
you are beginning the process of transformation that is going to continue until you're in the eternal presence of God. And that's when the last part of this will take place. That will be our perfected condition where glorification happens completely in the fullness of God. So we move from the original condition to the marred condition to the redeemed and renewed condition to then ultimately we're looking forward to the perfected condition in Christ. And that brings us full circle to the purpose of humanity. Why did God make us? Well, the Bible makes it abundantly clear that God created us and He created us for His glory. Isaiah 43 would be a reference. And the ultimate purpose of man, according to the Bible, is simply to glorify God. You say, what does it mean to glorify God? I want to glorify God with my life, but what does that mean practically? Well, in Psalm 100, in verse 2 and 3, we're told to worship God with gladness and to know that the Lord is God, and it is He who has made us, and we are His. So part of what it means to glorify God is just to acknowledge that he made you. It's recognizing the creative purpose of God that he gave you life. And in that life that he gave you, he gave you his image, his likeness. And we fulfill our purpose of glorifying God, living in the fullness of what it means to be a human being, to experience with flourishing in the purest sense of the word what it means to be a person living on this earth having been given life by God living faithful service to him here's something you might not have ever pointed or noticed in the bible that I want to point out to you interestingly we are able to glorify God because he gave us glory first so where's that in the bible I'm glad you asked Psalm 8 and verse 4 through 6 says, What is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet. And if you know your New Testament, you'll know that this psalm is repeated in Hebrews chapter 2. In verses 6 through 8. So we're told in both the Old Testament and the New Testament that we've been given glory by God. And then we return that glory to Him by the way that we live our lives. And the more that we get to know our Creator and the more that we love Him, the better we understand who we are and why we exist in the world. And the reason we exist in the world is to bring glory to God. And God has unique plans and purposes for every one of our lives. And those are going to be unique. Creative purposes. And as I often say, life is worship. You might think when you go to work on Monday morning that you're reporting to the salt mines and you're just doing your duty so that you can get through to the weekend and get your check. But in reality, if you're doing it as unto the Lord, you're doing it for the glory of God. Wouldn't it be a boring place if we all had the same role in the world? Wouldn't it be a boring place if we all had the same personality and the same giftings and the same abilities and the same experiences? I mean, that would be dreadfully boring. But God's made us all different. And our little contributions that sometimes seem so mundane and so useless are really contributing, if we're doing it for Him, 
for His glory. And it's seen in His creativity all around us. It's the simple thought that no two fingerprints are exactly alike. No two human beings are exactly alike. You think about the order in God's universe and the beauty of it all. And it just reminds us, it gives us a little insight into His glory. Stephen Altrog wrote this, and I'm going to close with this tonight. God, the one who fashioned the sun and the humpback whale and the great Dane, made us in His image. The divine image has been stamped on us. We alone are made in the image of God. God has given us the glorious task of representing Him on the earth, of showing the world what our God is really like, of showing the watching world that our God is a creative master who lives to bring beauty out of chaos. That's who our God is. And you and I have been made in His image and likeness. Let's don't miss the profound significance of what that means and why the doctrine of man is so important to theology. God's at the center of theology. It's the study of God. But all this intersects to help, to help us understand who we are and why we're here to begin with. Let's bow our heads together as we pray. Father, we thank you for these foundational truths in Scripture that help us understand what you've done in making us and your purpose in redeeming us and the significance of the life that you've given us. And I pray that tonight each one of us will be encouraged and we will be reminded of our inherent value because of who we are in you. And that because of that, we would live every day with purpose, even the things that seem mundane and routine and, and maybe not all that important. That when we wake up and our feet hit the floor, that we would be reminded that this day that you've given us is an opportunity to reveal your glory in the world. And we want to do it in a way that's consistent with who you are and that draws attention to Jesus, our Savior, to whom we are continually being conformed. We look forward to one day, Lord, when we're going to be in your presence and we're going to see the reality of all this, not just by faith, but by sight. And I pray you would strengthen us in the meantime as we trust in you. Give us clarity of thought in a world that is confused. Give us love and compassion for others who are caught up in their trespasses and their sins and their confusion. That we might be a good witness of the redeeming power of Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.